So what can you actually trust these days? That's a really good question, especially given the fact that there's so much out there that really does intend to trick you. What can you actually trust? Well, this guy put, this together, put together this 20-second video. You see these days, these glasses aren't even real. Neither is my face. All this stuff was 3D tracked on using these dots that I drew on with this marker. Actually, the marker isn't real either. Neither is the background or my face. Have a good night. Great. Thanks for ruining everything. Yeah, it really does bring up the question, what could you actually trust these days? And that really is a good question. I want to affirm the fact that you as a young high schooler should be asking questions, who or what can I trust? And how do I know that I can trust these things? And in fact, today, it's very common, uh, perhaps more than ever, to see high-profile Christians denounce everything that they've stood for. They probably grew up in a church like you, uh, they, they, they knew the Bible. They, in fact, some of them are pastors. And yet, despite them having all the access to God's truth that you do, they still chose to leave. The term today is called deconstructing or deconversion. They might call themselves exvangelicals. And here's my concern as a pastor, that you fall into the trap that these people fall into. I want tonight to explore how you deal with doubt. Because here's my, here's, here's my point. I, I'm going to tell you right now. I think you're going to doubt if you haven't already. Your job then is to say, well, what do I do with this when it happens? How do I deal with it? Because I'm expecting that you will experience a serious form of doubt. You might be like this guy. Hawk Nelson, the front man, who after years of leading a Christian band and touring all over the world under the name of Christ for this band that he leads, says, I no longer believe in God. In fact, he had this long-form conversation with apologist Sean McDowell. You might know him. He's down the block from us. He was on the podcast expressing some of his deepest doubts and concerns. Uh, among many things, one of his concerns was how is it possible that we believe in this really good, just God, and yet he allows these people in Sub-Saharan Africa to be starving. Kids whose bellies distend and die from starvation. They languish even as they prepare to die. How can God allow that to be? You might have also heard of Josh Harris, who also, as a pastor, raised under some really godly training and leadership. He wrote several books that were bestsellers in the Christian, uh, Christian community. He talked about dating and courtship, and he talked about uh, lust and how to defeat it with the gospel. And this guy knew his Bible. Again, he was a pastor until he wasn't. And what he did is leave his church and embrace, over this long progression of time, embrace a type of Gnosticism where he doesn't know what he believes anymore. He deconstructed his faith and he destroyed it. But what's left in the ashes of that pile of what was left of his Christian faith is hardly recognizable. If you were around long enough, you know that we've also discussed at length Rhett and Link, who are known for their good mythical morning. They have shoes and all these other cool things. They're really funny guys. They're really likable guys. But as you know, uh, last year, year before that actually, they came out with this massive two, three-part episode about how they went from being Christians who were thoroughly ingrained into the Christian culture, raised in youth ministry, knowing all the songs, writing fun songs for uh, children's Bible TV shows. I mean, these guys were successful in the Christian industry, and yet they left. They departed from the faith, and now both of them are embracing some form of Gnosticism. I should explain that term, Gnosticism. Um, 
is to say they're without knowledge. They don't know what the truth is. And so they don't claim to have the market cornered on truth, and therefore they just believe whatever feels right. And they're living their life most authentically that they can, even though that means rejecting a faith that was really hard and scary for them to leave, which they go in great detail about. Again, I think the question is serious to consider. What or who can I trust, and how do I know that? How can I, as a Christian, be confident about the things that I say that I believe? And in fact, I know for some of you in this room that you don't even believe. And so this might be fodder for you tonight to say, you know what, now I know why I don't believe. There's so many people that start it and then leave it. So what's the purpose of even joining it in the first place? Well, really what it comes down to is if Christianity is true, then you would be a fool not to believe it, no matter how you feel about it. But that's really not my main point. Here's... The trajectory. I think if you haven't already, you're going to go through some doubt. Some doubt about your faith. Some doubt about what you've been taught to believe. Some doubt about what is actually true. I expect that to happen. My job tonight then is to say essentially this, uh, when in doubt, search it out. One of the things I love about Christianity, I love about Christianity, is that we don't shy away from truth. We lean into it. No one's afraid of investigation in Christianity because we are adamant that, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that we can be confident that when we seek out the truth, we will not be met with more unbelief, but rather a confrontation, a face-to-face match, a showdown, if you will, with Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate. When in doubt, search it out. That really is my point tonight. I want to help you think through this and help you have some tools in your tool belt for how to go about this. And for that, we're going to look at a very famous text in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, um, throughout John's Gospel. Now, if you know your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this is the fourth Gospel, and the Gospel that was likely written the latest. It's written as late as A.D. 90, which means we're talking about 60 years after Jesus Christ had died and was resurrected. This gospel is special, though, because John's purpose in this gospel is to combat the very thing that we're talking about tonight, disbelief, doubt, cynicism. Uh, and, And the climax of John's gospel is in part the resurrection, which is obvious, right? Jesus rises from the dead. No one does that. No one does that. But after Jesus rises from the dead and shows himself, There's one guy who's not there to see the ordeal. There's one man who isn't present to see Jesus in the flesh. And so his friends come to him and tell him, dude, we saw Jesus. And of course, he immediately says, yeah, right. This is a story about Thomas. We're going to look with some fresh eyes at the gospel or at Thomas in the gospel of John and see how he deals with this and take some things away from how we can deal with some of the doubt that we encounter. Start with me at verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came and appeared. Now I want you to notice here, Thomas is one of the 12. The 12 what? Tell me what we're talking. 12 what? The disciples, but also known as capital A apostles. These are the men that Jesus tasked with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. You and I are here in large part because the gospel, uh, the, 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 the apostles did take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're here because we believe the message that they shared. But notice here, Thomas, essentially, uh, because he isn't there, doesn't see this ordeal happen. But he's one of the 12. He's one of the top, uh, capital A, apostles. Verse 25. So the other disciples, the other apostles, told him, 
Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I'm able to put my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Capital A Apostle hears from his very reputable friends, friends that he spent the last three years with, eating, drinking, sleeping, all these things. He spent three years with these people on top of that with Jesus. They tell him, Thomas, we've seen him. He, he's here. He's alive. He essentially gives him the, gives him the strong arm and says, no way, no, no way. And in fact, I'm not going to believe you so much so that unless you let me put my finger in the side in and out, if I can't put my finger through his, the nail-marked hands, I'm not going to believe you. I will, in fact, he says, I will never believe. That is a kind of uh, doubt that's metastasizing into harsh unbelief. But again, one of the apostles. Point number one, I want to put it like this for you. Now, we're going to talk about Thomas's disbelief in a moment, but I want you again, I already said this, but I want you, point number one, to expect your faith to experience doubt. If you are a Christian and you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, Lord, Messiah, King in your life, fantastic. That's wonderful. But notice Thomas left everything to follow Jesus, and yet, even still, he doubted him. He was, he, he saw Jesus' miracles. Thomas saw everything Jesus did. Sight to the blind, the dead raised, the cripple made whole. He saw all these things and he still said, I don't believe. I will not believe. That tells you something about doubt first and foremost is that doubt very much stems from a place of emotional turmoil. Thomas had just recently saw his, one of his best friends perhaps, his master, hung on a cross, naked, bloodied, brutalized, an innocent man, raised up high, he was likely in a state of emotional turmoil. That's easy. And because of that, one of the reasons he doesn't believe is because he's emotional. That's something to be aware of. Now, here's what I want to say. A doubt is not a good thing, but it is a normal thing. Doubt is not a good thing, but it is a normal thing. It is not unusual to go through seasons of your life where you start questioning uh, certain aspects of your faith. And again, I've said this before uh, among you guys, and you know this. Our faith is unusual. We believe in a Jewish Messiah who was predicted thousands of years beforehand, who died, literally died, and literally rose from the dead as a human being. And by the way, if that wasn't crazy enough for you, we also believe that he is both fully God and fully man. Explain that one to your friends. And not only that, we also believe that he ascended, like he elevated up to the right hand of God the Father. And he's coming back to judge the nations. That's some pretty crazy stuff. You believe this because you've been raised to, to believe this, and that's good. But when you step back and you start to examine our worldview, you start to say, man, this is really unusual given you know, the scientism that we live in. You know, people who are very logical, cogent thinkers, they'll challenge you with believing in a fantasy, a myth, or a legend. And if you're honest, you can understand at least some of that, can't you? Our faith is unusual. God spoke very loudly in the Gospels, and you ought to recognize that. So it's not a good thing, but doubt is a normal thing. And then I also argue that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. It's somewhere in between, a murky middle, but it's not static. Tonight, if you are doubting, let me encourage you. Doubt is not something that stays in place. As I, I used to term already, it metastasizes, it grows. And either you will doubt toward a faith in God or you will doubt toward disbelief in rejecting God. 
You cannot allow yourself to be in this messy middle forever. You have to do something with it. We'll get into more of that in a second. Expect your faith to experience that. I want you to know that, and I want you to realize that even if you've been a Christian for a long time, some of you guys have been in the church your whole life, uh, you, this is all you know. This is the only thing you know. You've always been raised to believe in Noah's Ark. You've always been raised to believe in you know, God uh, creating Adam and Eve and all of creation ex nihilo, which is to say out of nothing. You've been taught to believe this. And, and again, this is great. But let me again point out to you, Thomas was one of the 12. He saw everything Jesus did and yet still doubted. There can be a false security that is based upon your length of time in the church. You believe that because you've been here a long time, you've learned all the uh, apologetic nuances, or at least so you think, and you can be comfortable in something that maybe you shouldn't be comfortable in. In fact, the longer I've been a Christian, and I've said this before, guys, the longer I've been a Christian, the longer I've been able to see you guys as high schoolers leave the faith. Those who were once fiery, they loved Jesus, you know, they worshiped, they had all the best Bible answers, they seem to be getting it. I, if you put a gun to my head and said, is this person a Christian? I would say yes. But some of those same people depart the faith. And I can't explain it. I have no idea. Well, I do have an idea but I can't explain why, for some people, it seems so genuine, so authentic, and yet they, they leave. I don't want you to take comfort in the fact that you've been a Christian for a long time. Um, once saved, always saved, right? We say that quite a bit, and we believe that. That's truth, biblical truth. That's a summarization statement of biblical truth. However, once saved, always, always saved doesn't mean that you live any way you want, and God's just going to clean up the mess after you. No, God orchestrates every aspect of your salvation, including the means by which you stay Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you should not have your hope in the length of your Christianity. In fact, again, as I, as I was going back to here, I've seen a lot of your people leave, other students that you might even know about. Some you do know, I'm sure. Some you don't know, probably. Uh, but I've even seen people that I was raised with, you know, some people that I served with, people that I worshiped God with, who have now departed the faith. And that continues to be a recurring refrain throughout my life. And I don't take that for granted. I recognize how fragile faith can sometimes be. And therefore, you need to not take confidence in the fact that you've been a Christian for X many years. In fact, let me just get to the meat of this. Your confidence should always and ever be in what? What do you think I'm going to say? Good. Some of you got it. Your faith and your confidence should always and ever be in Jesus and him alone. You cannot keep yourself Christian. You can't make yourself a Christian. Your faith must be in Jesus. And we'll get to that more in a second here. Expect your faith to experience doubt even if you've been a Christian for a long time, even when others don't doubt the same thing you doubt. In fact, some of the questions and struggles that I've dealt with people, uh, dealt with, with people in the counseling office are things that you may not even really expect to be a stumbling block. Um, somebody I talked to recently, uh, their stumbling block was not the things that you might expect. The stumbling block was that their non-Christian friends were really good people. You ever think that would be a stumbling block for somebody? It's that they believed if Christianity was genuinely true, wouldn't it be the case that Christians as a whole would be nicer, more generous, more loving, more this, I mean, more all of these virtuous qualities. And on their end, it was like, well, but my unbelieving friends, my unsaved friends who are just good people, they're nicer, they're friendlier, they're more outgoing, they're, they're, they love people better. That's a stumbling block for some people. When Thomas was talking with his friends, they said, look, Thomas, Jesus is alive. And he's like, no, I'm not going to believe you. Well, how many guys were there? Probably the other 10 men. 
12, you know, 12 is the total guys, right? And, and you got minus one, Judas, because he hung himself. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. The other 10 guys are saying, no, Thomas, listen to us. He's alive. No, thank you. Please come again. No, don't come again. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm not going to believe that. Look, you may not doubt the same thing other people doubt, which is why if, if you had the privilege of not having to doubt God seriously at this point, praise God for that. Thank him for that. But uh, Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. Expect that your friends are going to struggle with doubt, even if you never do. And if you don't, that's exceptional. It's exceptional. And I would contend you might not be thinking deeply enough about your faith if that's the case. Might. But ex expect to experience doubt even when others don't doubt the same thing. I know somebody who is, who is doubting God because of God's clear teaching on same-sex attraction, homosexuality, transgender. I mean, it's the stuff that you guys all know. I've talked about this before. We've had conversations about this. And, and one of the challenges is God confronts human sin. And whenever that happens, it's always aggravating to our soul to say, I don't want that. I don't like that. God, keep your hands off me. I want to do my own thing. That, it could, that could be the thing. Uh, evil is another factor. You might have been privileged at this point in your life not to experience a great deal of evil events in your life, but when it happens, when it happens, you're going to be tempted. There's going to be that fleshy temptation to say, God, why? Even when others don't doubt the same thing, you should also expect your faith to experience doubt, but, 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 be on guard against arrogant obstinance. You notice Thomas gave the guys a list of demands that had to be met before he was willing to believe. Unless I could put my finger in his hands and feel the, the nail marks, unless I could take my hand and put it in his side, I'm not going to believe. I will never believe. Young person, let me tell you this. If you're doubting, one of the worst things you can do is set up this arrogant wall against God to say, I'm not going to believe in you unless you meet me and do all of these things for me. I'm going to put my fleece out and then have you make the fleece wet. And I'm going to put my fleece out again and have you make the fleece uh, dry and everything else wet. I mean, all of these things, and I'm, I'm quoting, obviously, or alluding to uh, the story of Gideon, who did test God in that way, and God met him there. You should not expect God to do that same thing for you. Look, God has given us something special in the Word of God, and we're going to get to that in a second, but recognize you cannot put uh, walls up against God. The best thing you can do if you're struggling with anything related to your Christian faith is to humbly submit yourself to God. Why? Well, because James 4, 6 says this, He gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. He opposes people that set themselves up as to be the end-all, be-all to all humanity. The smartest one. God, if you want me to believe in you, you have to prove it to me. Be on guard against arrogance, arrogant obstinance. <sighs> Doubt is as probable as a scam call. You guys get those scam calls too? I get those all the time. So I bought this thing called RoboKiller, put it on my phone, and what it's supposed to do is supposed to stop the scam calls from happening, right? It's the people that call and say, hey, you owe taxes, or uh, I'm a Nigerian prince and I want to help give you my money. I've only fallen for that twice. No more, though. That's it. No more. You need to expect that doubt's going to accost you and be a nuisance and kind of disrupt your schedule, much in the same way that these scam calls work. But like this filter, we're going to hopefully put a filter on you tonight to help you sift through some of the thoughts that are going to come to your mind. Because here's the thing, in today's climate, affronts and attacks on the Christian faith is, is more readily available than it's ever been. 
you want to go online and find the you know, neighborhood-friendly atheist, or if you want to do some digging about some of the things that people have said about why Christianity doesn't make sense, it's readily available for you. You need to then have some filters available for how to think these things through um, to install these filters in your brain against uh, some of the malfunctions that doubt can, can pull out, uh, malfunctions that doubt can provide for you. So look at these verses with me. We're going to find out now uh, how Thomas responds to this. So he just said, look, I'm never going to believe unless these things happen. And then I want to make some observations with you about how uh, things unfold for him. Take a look, starting at verse 26. It says this, eight days later. Now, really quick here, let me just tell you, eight days later is the next week. So these guys were together on Sunday, okay? This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. This is Easter Sunday. Eight days later, by a Jewish accounting, would include the day itself. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Eight days later. That's how they considered it. That's what they're thinking here. So he's together with the guys next Sunday. His disciples were inside again. And this time, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, you're in a room with the door locked and Jesus showed up out of nowhere, I think you'd be pretty stoked on the one hand, but terrified on the other, which is why Jesus is like, chill out, peace, chill, don't go anywhere, it's me, peace be with you. Verse 27. And then Jesus looks at Thomas, and I, I kind of, in my mind's eye, I think of Jesus just kind of like giving him a half smile, like, you jerk. I was with you for three and a half years. Okay, so he looks at him, said to Thomas, Thomas, come here, give me your finger. Not pull my finger. It's not that. Give me your finger. Put it, whoop, 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 you know, one of those things? Like, put it, put it in there. Put your finger here. See my hands, Thomas. And he says, here, put out your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Now, this is mind-blowing for several reasons. Number one, this is Jesus' resurrected body. He had risen from the dead. A whole week later, he shows up through the locked doors. He teleports inside that room somehow. And then he shows Thomas, look at my hands and then put your finger through my side. Put your hand there. Go ahead. This is Jesus' resurrected body. So think about that. This is Jesus' glorified body in the flesh, teleporting through walls, with still the nail marks in his hands and that hole in his side. Isn't that crazy to think about? Glorified body, renewed. He's keeping these marks for the rest of eternity. And he invites Thomas, look, Thomas, you have some doubts. Come on, come here, put it here. See what you want to do with that. By the way, how did Jesus know that he said that? I bet Thomas was asking that question. You weren't there when I said that, Jesus. How do you, hmm, well, you see how he responds, verse 28. So Jesus said, don't disbelieve, Thomas, believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my curios, which is my master, my Lord and my God. Now, some people say that Thomas is blaspheming here. It's like when, when you guys see something amazing, you guys should not use this, but OMG, right? You do the capital OMG to express surprise or amazement. Some people say that's what Thomas is doing here. Well, the reason that's not the case is because uh, you never see that in any of Scripture. No one's blaspheming God. No one's blaspheming Jesus. And John, who wrote the gospel, puts us here 
as a highlight, an emphasis, an undermine, a bold italicize to make the point that Jesus is no mere man. In fact, his resurrection and his ascension was part of displaying the fact that Jesus is more than a man. He is God in the flesh. And so when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, this is one of the climactic moments of the gospel. And and Thomas is being uh, essentially shown something that is incredibly special. He responds appropriately. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says, yeah, you got it right, man. Jesus doesn't stop him and say, well, hold on a second here. I'm just an angel. I'm just a really good guy. Don't go that far. No, he says, no, you believe rightly. I am God and I am your Lord. A couple quick observations about this text. Thomas is expressing hard, fast, deliberate doubt seven days previously. But notice where he is the next Sunday. He's with his homies, his Christian homies, who are telling him, I'm sure, ad nauseum, dude, Thomas, he was there. He is here. He's alive. And Thomas, to his credit, is with them. He's not off on his own. He's not going and trying to start up a new business. He's not, uh, he's not doing something else. He's, he's with them on the Lord's Day, the traditional day when the church gathered. Now, I don't want to make a, a, a mountain out of a molehill here, but I do want to make the point. Thomas was with the church, the early fledgling church. He was with them. That's important. So even as Thomas was doubting, he was with the church while he was doubting. Point number two, I want you to process, patiently process doubt with your church. Patiently process doubt with your church. This is essential. This is essential. You can doubt by yourself and you will self-destruct because you're going to find people on the internet that are going to help affirm the things that you are afraid of. But the, 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 the good thing about being in the church is that you're going to have people that have been where you are, walked where you walked, and know you and love you. Thomas was with his church. He was with his friends. The people that he spent the last three and a half years with, he was with them. And so this is an important factor in sustaining your faith through the seasons of doubt. This is an important part. Some of the people that have left the faith, and again, we'll talk about Josh Harris real quick here. Here's some of the things he said. The information that was left out of our announcement, and he's talking about the last post that he had was about his divorce of his wife. Um, He divorced his wife, and then he's like, hey, I'm no longer a Christian. I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Uh, Martin Luther said that the entire life of the believer should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I've lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, and he goes on to say, I've repented of my Christianity. He goes on. I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality, not for affirming you and your place in the church, and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. To my Christian friends, I'm grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return calls. I can't join in your mourning, your sadness. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julie in that all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. 
Now, I don't know how this strikes you, but I do know that what his post says to me is grievous. Uh, I repent of my Christian faith. I repent of saying things that hurt your feelings. I repent of uh, being a pastor and doing things that suggest to you things that are hurtful or painful. Uh, Essentially, I think one of the heartbeats of Josh Harris is he's sorry for saying things that hurt people's feelings. And And I understand that. If you're a Christian and you're going to be faithful to Jesus, Jesus says things that are very confrontational. And in fact, Jesus' confrontation doesn't only rest with sexuality. It's against all of us. Jesus says hard things. He says things like, if, if you want to be my disciple, you want to follow me, you need to be willing to die to yourself. Your desires, your wants, your hopes, your dreams, get rid of those, follow me, and let me define your desires, your wants, your hopes, your dreams. Oh, Pastor Rod, that's hurtful. I like my dreams. That's what Jesus says. And if I'm going to be faithful to you, I have to be willing to step on your toes and hurt your feelings because this is what Jesus says. Josh Harris is hurt because of the things that he said. He's divorced his wife. He's, he's happy about this, though. He's happy that he's got a whole new track in life. Again, I'm not delusional. I think some of you guys are probably struggling even right now with this stuff. And I want you to take this stuff, this serious thinking that you're probably going through, and bring this to your church. Bring this to people that can help process with you through this. A couple quick things on patiently processing. First, don't expect immediate resolution. I want to point out to you that uh, Thomas was with the disciples eight days later. That means for eight days, he had to hear his friends tell him, Jesus is alive. He rose again. And he had to say, no, I'm not going to believe that. It took time for this to unravel and unfold. Uh, This is not a quick, easy remedy. And again, the Christian faith is robust, intellectually challenging, and it it is something that is not easy believism. If you've been taught in your thinking about Jesus and about the gospel, that everything is uh, black and white and and the edges are, you know, really uh, hard and it's clear this from that, I need you to understand that Christianity is robust, and there are a lot of difficult passages and difficult concepts to, to wrap your mind around. And so uh, you should not expect immediate resolution to very complex and challenging issues. The more you expect God to answer quickly in a microwave-style fashion, the more disappointment you set yourself up for. You need to expect that there may not be immediate resolution. There might be. Your issue may not be as challenging, but you should not expect there to be a, a quick resolution. In fact, if you think about the story of Job, Job loses everything in his life. God rips everything out from under him, kills his kids, obliterates his bank account, and leaves him with a nagging wife, and that's it. And Job, at the end of this, is like, man, he spends 40 chapters worth of time saying, God, why, 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 why? Why don't you love me? Wasn't I faithful to you? Why don't you do something for me, God? What have I done to deserve this? And this whole while, he's got his friends who were not helping him, They're accusing him. Well, surely you've done something to earn this kind of treatment from God, Job. Doesn't God treat good people with good things? Surely you're hiding some sin. If you would just tell us what that sin is, then surely we could pray for you and maybe God would restore you. But Job, as you know, doesn't get a quick answer. He languishes with boils on his body. He takes pot shards and is like popping the pusses on his arm and he's scratching himself. He's in dust and ashes. This guy is just a train wreck of a person. And of course, you know, the secret to the story is that God is orchestrating every single moment of it. Granted, he's letting the devil do his work, but God is overseeing this entire situation. Now, if you had tomorrow, you, you woke up, 
Your parents died. Your siblings died. You were suddenly poor and penniless. Uh, your car breaks down. I mean, you're, you, you get hit in the face with something, and so your, your looks vanish. Everything that you previously knew and appreciated, if God were to take that away from you, you probably would say, well, man, there's something wrong. I, man, God's mad at me. God wasn't mad at Job. In fact, God was proud of Job. He was boasting about Job to the devil. He was saying, have you seen my servant Job? The dude is amazing. He loves me. He's faithful. He's blameless. And then the devil says, oh, yeah? Challenge accepted. My, my only point in this one here, guys, is I, I don't want you to panic. When it comes to you, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't stop attending. Don't, don't, I just don't panic. Let's keep going on here. I want you to stay actively involved in the church. Not, not only not expect immediate resolution, stay actively involved. The truth is worth fighting for. And if Christianity isn't true, then really anything else goes. If Christianity isn't true, then anything else goes. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The stakes are really high, guys. If Christianity isn't true, anything else goes. But if Christianity is true, then nothing else is. If Christianity is true, nothing else, no other religious system, is true. Because Christianity, as you know, is exclusive in its claims. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are no other options. There are no other alternatives, no matter how much you might desire that. Stay actively involved in your church. In point Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. He was actively involved in the church. He was, uh, I mean, I'm sure he was talking about these things. Verse 27, they said to Thomas, uh, Jesus said, now put your finger here. See my hands on my side. I mean, put it, put it all here. Come on, Thomas. Go do what you, wanted, you said you wanted to do. Uh, I want you to recognize also uh, that in patiently processing, you need to trust God's grace to give you what you need when you need it. Now, Thomas had to wait a whole week, and that's, that's not a lot of time, given all things considered, but recognize whatever your issue is, uh, you need to trust that God in his grace is going to give it to you when you need it, what you need, when you need. And, and honestly, it's his timetable that you're working with. If you push and, and try to make God fit into your timetable, you're going to be disappointed more often than not, because God often works under his own timing for his own purposes. Our faith is a lot like on-the-job training. Like when I first started working at McDonald's, way back in high school, um, they put me in the drive-thru. I was terrified. The drive-thru is high stakes. You'll mess up the drive-thru. And they put me at the point of service system, the machine, right? You put the order in there. And there was a trainer next to me, and I was like, man, this thing's complicated. I don't know how to do this. And so I'm trying to talk to the person, take their order while putting it in the machine. I was, I was terrified. And I'm like, can you just teach me first and then let me do this as opposed to putting me in the hot water and then turning up the heat at the same time? Uh, no, they didn't do that. They taught me while I was in the, the drive-thru. By the way, when all was said and done, I was the best drive-thru guy ever. I defy you to be a better drive-thru guy than I was. It was so much fun. But that's by my own reckoning. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm pretty sure I was the best. <laughs> Side point. God will deal with your doubt on his timetable. You need to trust the process, lean into him, trust that he will give you what you need when it suits him. Your job is to trust him to provide while you sit in discomfort. Like Job, pop in the pussy boils on your, your skin. 
Thomas responded the right way, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you've seen, you believe, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's, that's us right now. We trust God's grace to provide what you need. We also pursue a thoughtful and mature childlike faith. Childlike doesn't seem to relate to thoughtful and mature. I, I recognize that, but I think that's what God wants from us. If one of my kids were to open my refrigerator and see that there's no food in there, I would expect none of them to freak out. I wouldn't expect them to like run around the house and be like, oh, dad, there's no food. What are we going to do? We're going to die. I wouldn't expect that from them because they know up to this point in their lives, they've always had a, a refrigerator full of food and they would, might just go and say, hey, what's going on? There's no food in the refrigerator. What are we eating today? They would not freak out though because they have trusted my leadership and my provision in their lives. And the same thing is true with all of us. If you're sitting here today, you've seen God act in your life in your favor. You've seen God show you himself in a variety of ways. When things happen in your life to cause you to stumble and to doubt God, the first response should be freaking out and saying, oh no, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? No, the response is a thoughtful and mature childlike faith. Thoughtful. God, he provided before. Um, a, a mature. I'm not going to freak out and, and lose my cool. I'm going to think about this and respond with a calm, cool collectedness and childlike. I'm going to trust that God, who has already provided for me, will provide for me in the future. Thoughtful and mature childlike faith. Often, you go wrong in some of these and all of these. Really, they all kind of work together. But look, when you're doubting, please, 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 stay connected to your church. Talk to people who can help guide you through this. And let you know as we keep going. Let me show you, show you how this all wraps together. I told you, this is one of the climaxes of the book of John. Uh, Jesus rises again. Uh, he uses Thomas, a doubting apostle, to say, look, Jesus is more than a man. He is God. He is Lord. And then John goes and he ends the book like this, or not ends the book. He ends this major section. And he says, look, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Wouldn't that be interesting to know, though? Like, what else did Jesus do that John got to see? What else could Jesus have done to display his godness and his, his, his messianic kingship? Well, we don't know that. And, and John says that outright. Jesus did a lot of other things. Jesus had a ministry that was three and a half years long. I'm selecting a few things for you to see here. But trust me, John says, there's a million other things that you don't even know about. And I'm sure if he, would, if he was talking uh, to us today, he would say, and if I told you, it'd blow your mind. I mean, that's exciting to think about. However, he goes on, verse 31. He says, but these things, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the anointed one, and he's the Son of God. And that by believing these, uh, these things about him, you may have life, abundant life, we might say, real life, true life in his name. John points you to the scriptures. He says, look, I've edited this. I've collected all these things. I need you to understand that as it comes to your faith and your progress, your, the, the, the growth of your faith, you need to recognize that it is not the quantity of your faith that makes you sustained as a Christian. It is the object of your faith, Jesus Think about this. John could have written a book twice as long and told you everything that Jesus did. He doesn't because he knows that it doesn't matter how much he tells you necessarily. It, what matters is the object of your faith, not the quantity of your faith, the object of your faith. 
This is why I said at the beginning of the sermon, look, uh, you need to know that you can't trust yourself. You can't trust the length of your Christianity. You can't trust your parents necessarily. You're trusting only in Jesus Christ. That is where your faith will stand firm. And Jesus Christ is found not here necessarily. You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't put your fingers in, his, in, the, in the holes of his hands. You can't take your arm and put it through his side. But here's what you can do. You can find the Christ, the actual, true, living Jesus Christ in his word. And I think that's where John points us. Point number three, if you're going to conquer uh, if you're going to conquer doubt or deal with it productively, you need to bolster your faith by feasting on the scriptures. Feasting on the scriptures. And here's the thing, guys. There's a lot of things in your life that are influencing you every single day. There are invisible forces at work in your life that are influencing the way that you think, feel, and act. Like this. Here's a really fast video. Boom. Okay, that's not going to work. Unless it can work. Is it going to? You don't know. Okay. This video, this gal is sitting in a, in a waiting room, and the gal on the right-hand side is an actor, an actress. A beep goes off, and the actress stands up. The, the, the gal in the pink shirt, or the purple shirt there, not him, gal in the purple shirt, looks at her like, what are you doing? And she says, oh, that's what they told us to do. Beep goes off, she stands up again. And as this girl continues to do it, the other girl sitting next to her says, okay, I guess we better do that. So now she's standing up, the beep goes off. Other people start filtering in this waiting room, and as they notice other people around them standing up when the beep goes off, you guess what they do? Stand up. And so finally, over the course of several minutes, you have different people standing up for no apparent reason. Someone asked, well, why are we doing this? So I don't know. But did they keep doing it? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. The narrator goes on to say, many people don't, uh, similar forces rather, similar forces are subconsciously shaping the way you think right now. And they go on to say that your social context influences your behavior in ways that you are never even truly and fully perceptible of. You see, your life and your mind will be shaped in large part by what you allow yourself to consume. The people that you spend time with, the books that you read, the music you listen to, the movies that you watch, the shows that you binge on, uh, the, 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 the kind of things that you put before your eyes, whatever you're watching at night when you're alone, everything that you allow into your life Whatever you consume is going to have an impact on the way that you think and the way that you live. Which is why, again, I'm, I'm telling you, you got to feed your faith. Feed and feast on the scriptures. Most of us have a relationship with the Bible that is more like a snack. You know, one of the fun snacks, the little itty-bitty 100-calorie sizes. That's not sufficient for most of us. And that's why John points us to this. John wants us to realize that uh, the, the power that God displays to us is going to be found in large part on his word. So here's what Scripture is going to teach you. First and foremost, I need you to understand this. There are some things you will never, ever, 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 ever know. Explain this. How is God holy and sovereign? And how does man have meaningful, real choice? Some of you might use the term free will. I don't know if that's a biblical term to use, but how is God perfectly sovereign, declaring the end from the beginning, and how are man, 
How is man free to make choices? I can't put that together. I believe certain propositions about God, and I think there are some creative ways of attempting to reconcile that, but I don't know that anyone ever really has a good answer that perfectly explains both propositions. God is fully sovereign, and from the beginning, not a single molecule outside of his sovereign reign, and man makes real choices. I don't know how to put that together. There are some things that you may never, ever, ever fully know. Just like if you remember, let's go back to the story of Job for a second. I want you to remember Job complained against God all throughout the book. And here's what, here's what God says to him. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Essentially, God slaps Job up the face and says, dude, who are you to ask me these questions? You're a man. You're, you're of the dust. I'm God, and you're coming over here throwing accusations at me as if I owe you an explanation? Later at the end of the book, Job says this. He says, look, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are in control, God. You know the end from the beginning. God, you said, who is it that, who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, look, I know that's true. Therefore, I have uttered what I don't understand, which is often where most of us land, guys. You guys are talking about things or you go through things, uh, doubts and feelings that are, you don't know the full story. And often you only have this much information for a God who knows everything. Think about this. God knows every single thing that can be known. Every single thing that can be known, God knows that. And even knows the things that Maybe. God knows contingencies. He has contingent knowledge. It's not just what actually happens, but what could happen. God knows those things too. Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things that are too wonderful for me which I did not know. And by the way, this whole uh, chapters 38 through 40, give or take, uh, God questions Job and says, look, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? How, do you, how, does, it, how does this work? You tell me. You know things, Job. You're a big, you're a big shot. You, you deserve you to be given an answer. How does this work? You tell me. You're God, right? You tell me how this works. And Job's like, oh, I guess I don't know things. You, you do, God. I'm sorry. Hear and I will speak, God said, said to Job. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job says, look, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Sounds a little bit like Thomas, right? Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. There are some things about God that you will never, ever know, young person. Doesn't mean you can't look, can't study, can't think. There's often a lot of, uh, a lot of runway for you to think God's thoughts after him, but there are some things that you may never fully wrap your mind around, and this is part of God being God and you being human. The infinite doesn't always neatly fit into the finite. There are some things you may never, ever, ever fully know, but notice verse 31 here. But these things are written so that you may believe. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing these things, you may have life in his name. While you can't know everything, what you can know is sufficient and even, dare I say, satisfying. Satisfying for life and faith in Christ. Christian philosopher said this, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. Essentially, says what Jesus says, 
We have what we need in scriptures. John affirms this. We have everything we need in the scripture. We get to see Jesus in the scriptures. You have enough there. The challenge is whether or not you're going to take up those scriptures and study them and let God change you through them. Do you remember when Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus? He tells this parable about this rich man who feasted sumptuously. He was rich. He had everything he needed. While Lazarus, this poor man, would try to catch the scraps that he left at his table. And he was poor. He laid on the ground and the mangy dogs in the city would come and lick the sores of Lazarus. Well, as time would have it, both men die. The rich man is carried to essentially hell. And Lazarus, the poor man, is carried to heaven. He is with the hall of faith. And so the rich man looks over to, to Lazarus and sees that, hey, things are much better for him. And so he calls to Abraham, the father of the Old Testament faith. And he says, Abraham, tell Lazarus to come over here and dip his finger in some water and give me a drink. And Abraham says to him, well, that's not possible. We can't do that. That doesn't work this way. You're in hell. He's in heaven. Your eternities are fixed, essentially, paraphrasing. He says, okay, if that's not the case, then please, please, Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead and have him go talk to my family and tell them, please repent and believe in order that they, they can avoid this place. And so he begs him and pleads with Abraham, says, please send him back, send Lazarus back to my family. And Abraham says, no, that's not going to happen. They're not going to believe, they're not going to believe. So the rich man says, but, but Abraham if someone would rise from the dead, they will believe. And he says, no. If they will not believe the scriptures, they will not believe even if someone should rise from the dead. If they saw the most miraculous sign, that's not going to convince them. What will convince them is the word of God. So you see why I'm emphasizing this point to you. The word of God is going to be one of the clinching factors that's going to help you work and process through doubt. You cannot do it without letting the Word of God change you, inform you, instruct you. What you can know is sufficient. Scripture is enough. It will promote your faith. It will stabilize you. You must trust Jesus to reveal himself in the Bible. If you're a pilot or aspire to be a pilot, one of the things that you're going to have to learn is to trust your instruments. There is such a thing as being spatially disoriented. You're in the sky and you don't know if you're up or down because there's fog, you've got dense conditions, you can't see anything. But what you can see are the instrument panels in front of you. And your job in that moment is either to trust the instrument panels to tell you what's up or down and how, how fast you're going and what your altitude is, or to, tr to trust your instincts, your feelings. Of course, you know that the only way a pilot can fly correctly is to not trust his spatial orientation, because he can be spatially confused. He must trust his instruments. And if he's able to do that, he can safely navigate from one place to the next. A similar kind of confusion can happen with Christians. We can be spiritually disoriented. And the question that you have is whether or not you're going to trust the instruments of the Word of God, faith, or whether you're going to trust your own feelings. Again, if you trust your feelings, you're likely going to crash because your feelings can mislead you. When in doubt, search it out. Trust the Word of God, trust faith in God, and let Him lead you through this. So let's dismiss, and I'm going to hope and pray that you guys have a great time in your small groups. Music